Greetings, downhillers, free riders, dirt jumpers, slope stylers, and other progressive riders, including beginners, intermediate, and advanced. It's episode number eight of the MTB Jumper Podcast. I feature conversations with extraordinary riders, coaches, and industry leaders. We talk about skill development, bikes and gear, digging and building, strength and fitness, and much, much more. I'm your host, Norman Peterson. Thanks so much for tuning in. For so many of the people I talk to, professional mountain biking seems simple. Sure, there's lots of hard work and years of skill development, but then it's just ripping and riding and having a blast. Of course, the realities are always more complex than that, and this week's guest is not afraid to expose those complexities. He shares truths about the business, emotional, physical, and personal difficulties of being a pro athlete, and he offers unique, powerful practice and attitude tips along the way. This episode is a journey, my friends. Crack open your beverage of choice and settle in for my frank and open discussion with Charlie Sponsel. Um, but th- so the question is about that van, uh, can you bake a cake in it? You can absolutely bake a cake in it. Well, I should say I can bake a cake in it. Yeah. See, see video in show notes, dear listeners. Yeah. All right. That's, anyway. a, that's a pro-level maneuver, so <laughs> I'll yeah. say. you could hurt yourself. So be careful. The hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Don't do not try this at home. <laughs> By the way, uh, dear listeners, I just want to apologize ahead of time if you watch that. I'm simultaneously proud of that, and that is for sure the dumbest concept we ever went ahead with for a video. So, <clears throat> how did you yourself. get? How did you get access to the music? Oh, we never had access to. Any oh, music. okay. We just we just used it because. I don't know. I've been watching a lot of mountain bike videos for a long time. Mm-hmm. Sure. And at a certain point, I realized most of those people are not getting access for videos. And, and yeah. the gravity videos were a lot more commercial okay. than your average kid with a handy cam. Mm-hmm. But I had never heard of anyone getting a cease and desist or especially getting sued or something like that right. from a music label. So I advise gravity to just let it roll. Just do it. Yeah. And I don't know how that worked with corporate because they're a very Taiwanese company. Mm-hmm. So at, in the, in the high up leadership levels and they don't have a sense of humor about things like that, but <laughs> yeah, but it seemed to work out. So yeah. I'm kind of an outsider as far as the, the, the downhill race scene goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm more of a, just a, um, what you'd call, uh, average consumer, right? But I'm closely connected with AJ Johnson. Up and go hike yourself. Yes, in Renton. And, you know, I, I hear these things about these people in, in the in the pro mountain biking world. And of course, I've watched all the videos and yeah. followed it for, for a couple decades now and all that stuff. Uh, watched the progressive scene grow and explode and, and tried to squeeze myself in here and there in my own way but um anyway so a friend of mine a couple of years ago said uh to you dude have do you read team robot and and i said well i don't know what you're talking about and <laughs> and and then so that's my introduction to you is my friend connor cawthorn uh who who suggested that i check out team robot and i'm gonna go ahead and and um clarify that i i've read a few posts on team robot gotten a feel for what the concept is slash was i'll leave that part up to you um and so i'm not in a way i feel like i'm uniquely qualified to ask you questions about it because i'm not a super fan i'm not one of the guys that was hoping you'd con- you'd reply to my com- comments yeah. and 
or <laughs> or whatever, you know, from way back in the day. So and which articles <clears throat> did you read specifically? Like, did you read the Crank Brothers one? Because that's probably some of my proudest work. Tell me about that. So Crank Brothers is an awful company that makes terrible products that look okay. really pretty. Okay. Um, and they have, a, I think there are a couple notable exceptions to that. Some of their hand tools are nifty. Mm-hmm. But pretty much everything else is awful, and it comes in a million fun colors. Sure. And obviously, their graphic designer had a, a field day when he made the packaging. Like, it's some of the nicest packaging. I mean, if you were just looking, if you were shopping based on packaging, you would buy Crank Brothers every time. I mean, Absolutely. and, <clears throat> you know, like some packaging, you need to cut that horrible plastic, not shrink wrap, but you know what I mean? Yeah. The stuff that you can't get open any which way. Mm-hmm. I mean... This guy has a PhD in packaging because everything, it's cardboard, but everything slides out really neatly and unfolds. Mm -hmm. It's like a transformer. It's brilliant. Um, But I think he spent a lot more time on that than he did on, you know, like (laughs) bearing durability or um, maybe stepping into the shoes of the average consumer and trying to figure out, is this person ever going to have to replace rims? Mm. Will this person ever ride in the mud? Does does everyone not actually ride in Laguna Beach, California? And so they had these awful wheels for a long, long time. I think they debuted their wheels in, I want to say, 2005 or something. Okay. And they used this, of course, because every wheel manufacturer, they, they came up with a proprietary spoke system because, okay. you know, J-Bend spokes have been you know, holding up bicycles for the last 110 years. So (laughs) those obviously aren't going to work. So they came up with this horrible proprietary spoke pattern and the hubs fall apart in all sorts of weird ways. But the worst thing is that the spoke pattern required a proprietary rim. Mm. And these wheels, I want to say like in 2005 were 800 bucks or something for a set, which is just astronomically more expensive than everything. This is before carbon wheels existed. Sure. Um, but you couldn't replace the rim when you dented it. Mm. And I say when, because if you actually ride bikes, you dent rims yep. like all the time. And this is one of the first tubeless specific wheels that wasn't UST. So especially when you're running tubeless, if you dent a rim, you lose the ability to hold air a lot of time, right? Gotcha. Like you can do horrendous things with a tube in there. Mm-hmm. Like I've been able to see the inner tube. I've put dents in so big with tubes that you can see the inner tube and you're like, oh, well. That seems to be working for now. You keep riding it. Um, But with anyway, so they had these horrible wheels forever. And then in 2014, which is almost a decade after they debuted these awful wheels. And what was funny is you kept seeing them less and less in their advertising. Their athletes would stop running them. So you'd see their athletes running pedals or seat posts or whatever, but not their wheels. Because there was sort of this acceptance like, oh, we should probably hide those. Those are those are pretty embarrassing and terrible. And then all of a sudden, they had this huge press release, which I love. So most of Team Robot was just reading press releases or media from some enthusiastic marketing manager who just did an awful job. And then I would just basically point out everything that was terrible about that press release or media. So anyway, uh, it was a press release talking about how excited they were about or how great this new product was. All new. And it was almost exactly the same product. Like... Looking at the two of them, you couldn't tell there was a difference. And then they had diagram after diagram in their press release comparing the new and the old. And side by side, it was so funny because they really were exactly the same. Like, they made the rims 
two millimeters wider, uh, but the profile was identical. They talked about how, oh, the spokes are, you know, like a quarter gauge thinner or it, basically it was exactly the same product. Hmm. Um, but then they just bumped up the price and put bold new graphics on it. And they were so excited. So I just really explored that theme of uh, slightly different while being, we struck a balance between being slightly different while still being almost exactly the same. Right. And it was just thing after thing after thing and talking with, you know, the product manager about how difficult it was to almost exactly not change the product. Right. Um, <laughs> and then talking with Sun Anwei, one of the workers in the Taiwanese factory, <laughs> <laughs> and it hit a poor imitation of a Taiwanese accent, sure. you know, transliterated. So, yeah, it was some of my prouder work. And I think it got on uh, Drunk Cyclist is how it got reposted. Okay. Um, and it ended up getting 40,000 page views in like Jeez. a week or something. Wow. So that that was that was pretty cool yeah. um, and got dozens and dozens of comments. And so that was one of the first things where I went, oh, this is actually a successful platform. Yeah. I just had this dumb blog for me and my friends, and apparently a lot of people are reading it. So, yeah, by the peak of the blog, um, we were at seventy or 80,000 um, viewers per month, unique visitors. Um, and I think we got 1.8 million page views. Jeez. So, yeah, and it was a blog for, active blog for eight years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until so. late 2015 or early 20, what one? Uh, yeah, late, late 2015. Sure. Um, yeah. Maybe a little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. So, and that was when I just got super burned out on racing and just threw in the towel. So, um, that was a funny episode too, but. Okay. Well, awesome. That, that gives us an idea of what, what is, or what was team robot. Um, I hate everything. That's team robot. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> and not, I don't right. That's I'm so that's, what's yet. so funny about it is <laughs> if you actually read it, yeah. And I think there are lots of people who would label it as, oh, those are just haters. Actually, as a matter of fact, I'm really excited to report Clay Porter remembers Team Robot. So I've got my friend Adam uh, is filming with Clay Porter today. Okay. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm out here with Clay in the woods in Bellingham. And I said, oh, tell Clay I said hi. And sure enough, he writes back, uh, all Clay said was, oh, is that that kid who was always talking shit? <laughs> Hi, back. <laughs> um, but if you read all the articles, it was really clear that there was a strong editorial position. Absolutely. Yeah, right? I, I noticed that. I noticed that there's this kind of a disconnect between the authorship and uh, and the comments. Totally. And, which is, which is that's the internet, though, right? Yeah. And if you, if you have even the slightest lean toward um, criticism... Or critical thinking, even and just yeah. in general, you, you might even rake in a few extra trolls and and just generally terrible people. Yeah. <laughs> so you get you get both sides, right? Yes. So you get the trolls who say, and I remember so many comments where people would say, "I'm so glad you hate marketing or you hate the bike industry," mm. um, and they would just pray for me to say awful things about everyone in the bike sure. industry. And then on the other side, you would have people who were so offended by even the idea that I would say something. It's like, we're all in this together. We're all bros and mountain biking. Where do you get off? Like, it's not important enough to spread hate and whatever. Like, we should all bro down and love each other and have a gigantic circle jerk, right? Sure. Um, but it was somewhere in the middle where I, the reason I wrote all that crap is because I love the bike industry. Mm-hmm. And really because I feel deeply, uh, 
I have some strong ideas about what marketing can be, what it should be, what it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Like marketing doesn't have to be evil. Mm-mm. Part of marketing <laughs> is advertising and advertising is inherently kind of creepy, right? This idea of, oh, we're going to tell you to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you assume, which I think is a reasonable assumption that people are going to buy things and they will be making choices between good options and bad options and trying to find what works best for them. Marketing is about bringing products to the consumer or alerting them about products that already exist that will meet their needs so that they can buy the thing that will help them the most. Sure. And so if you start from a marketing perspective and say, how can we help customers? Then that's not evil. No. Nope. <laughs> that's super helpful. And we're all better off when you do that. But when the bike industry turns into, we need to roll out a new product and convince people to buy it or sales are kind of down how do we spice it up? That's when it starts to look really evil really quickly. Yeah. And that's the sort of bullshit that needs to be highlighted. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and that's why I ranted on the internet sometimes <laughs> five times a day <laughs> for, for years. eight years of my for life. Eight yeah. years, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's let's go back in time. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've been asking everybody about their, their origins on the bike and um, and with two-wheeled sports or action sports in general. And do you care to get into that? Totally. Okay. Um, so my dad was actually a pro ski racer. Um, cool. So, yeah, he did that up until about age 24. Um, and I was born in Minnesota. So we started skiing. I think I started skiing at age two. Um, so, and that's before, you know, I could even talk. I was just drooling out of the side of my mouth and barely balancing on and <laughs> But skiing. Yeah. And the way they, the way they taught us, it's great. Uh, really mellow bunny hill, right? But they would just send me, my dad would be at the top of the hill and my mom would be at the bottom and they'd just send us to mommy. Yeah. And then after we got the hang of that, mom would start walking to one side of the hill so that we would then just unconsciously turn to get oh, to her. Wow. And then they would trick us and she would then walk back the other way. <laughs> so we'd be just doing turns back and forth trying to get to her, which is a great way to trick kids into turning. That's right? like the run bike of skiing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because they just go to a slightly longer hill, right? And then have mm-hmm. her move all around. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So anyway, um, so I started skiing at a really young age, started biking at a really young age, um, and instantly started trying to do dumb things with it. So, like, when we moved to Virginia, um, I, I was probably seven when I tried to ride down this super steep retaining wall in our neighborhood and went over the bars and got knocked out and had to get a ton of stitches. And, yeah, uh, so that that happened pretty early on. Wait, that's on a bike? That's on a bike. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just got the training wheels off and then mm-hmm. said, Ken, I think that was my brother said, I think I can do this. I think I got this. He, he is very much more risk averse than me. Hmm. Um, and he did not think that was a good idea. And then he, <clears throat> apparently I was unconscious and just screaming into my bloody massive <laughs> oh, face on oh, the ground. Oh, oh. So that's a funner memory for me than it is for him. I'm sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, uh, well, the I, fact that you find that memory fun <laughs> at all. Uh, that says something about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It says a lot, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and then did a couple cross-country races when I was probably 12 or 13. Did ski racing up until about that same age. That's where? Um, that's here in Oregon. Okay. So I did my first I, I did my first cross-country race, my first bike race, uh, at 
Buck Hill in Minnesota on a family vacation. Okay. And Buck Hill is 300 vertical feet. Mm-hmm. And I remember at age 12 or 13, it felt like an insurmountable... It felt like the Alps. Sure. It was just... The start was just straight up 300 <laughs> feet. Which, if you think about it, a 300-foot steep climb is like still a huff now yes and if you're 12 and you've never gone up a hill that big it was just <laughs> agonizing um and i remember being so technical and so hard and i'm guessing our race was only 45 minutes but i remember thinking that was the coolest thing i've ever done um and then what really was the coolest thing was on another family vacation through um british columbia and alberta we went to whistler british columbia uh-huh. right and we got rental bikes and this was back when they were stinkies with six inches of travel and yep. v-brakes um so v-brakes right 45 um, pounds or so oh it must have been just insane <laughs> i remember they had the huge seg big boy saddle on them um so it was a junior t fork the Why? huge big boy i know right is the most unbalanced <laughs> bike ever um and i specifically remember it had tioga tires on it it had the white tiger, which was almost bald, like out of the Stargate. Oh. And then like a brand new Tiger White Tiger looks almost like a semi-slick. And then they were all rental bikes. So it was just the worst bike you could ever ride. Yeah. But to a 13-year-old kid, it was just so many worlds better. Sure. And it went up and down, right? Yeah. I mean, like the front and rear end went up and down. <laughs> and then you're at Whistler. And, you know. I got the claw, you know, you know, the claw when you have to pull your hands off either end of the yes. bar because they're just clenched in this <laughs> like agonizing, horrible mm-hmm. perma grip. Exactly. Perma grip. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I got the claw and was just totally hooked. Um, and pretty much from that point back, uh, from that point on, we got back to Portland. Uh, my brother said, oh, I have this friend um, who apparently has dirt jumps in his backyard. And that was Aaron Nachtrob. And he went to Lake Oswego High School. We went over to Aaron's place. And uh, that was the first place I ever went dirt jumping. Like the first time I ever hit a rhythm section with two jumps in a row. Yeah. And I remember it took probably 15 tries of going over the first jump before I was ready to try and hit that. So it's like first jump, bail. First jump, bail. First jump, bail. Because you're trying to, you know, get your wheels down in just the right spot. Welcome to my world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're like, okay, if I don't get my wheels down in exactly the right spot, yeah. I'll die oh, yes. on this next jump. Absolutely. I will certainly die. Um, and you're over jumping a little bit. You're under jumping. Mm-hmm. And that was back when I thought the secret to jumping was speed. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, sure. I did four and a half pedal strokes and I went too far. So I need to do four and a quarter pedal strokes, right? Uh, You're not thinking about like, oh, I need to pull up a little bit more. Um, So anyway, I finally got the sweet spot on like jump number 15. I got the sweet spot on the first landing, hit the next one. And it was the most insanely good feeling ever Mm -hmm. to hit two jumps in a row. Yeah. Just the instant adrenaline. And I was like, oh, well, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. I remember that exact feeling like, this is it. This is the best feeling ever. Problem solved. Yeah. And so we dug dirt jumps uh, in that lot forever, uh, or rather for two or three years until they got plowed. Um, We found a new spot um, out in Riverview Cemetery. um, And that was sort of the team robot trail spot that we had for about seven years. Um, And it was just a mix of downhill racing, like, I was about 14 or 15 when uh, I did my first downhill race at Ski Bowl. And that's amazing, right? Because you don't have to pedal to the top. You don't have to push to the top. There's a magical chairlift that takes you up there. And then 
you get to be terrified for five minutes and try and beat your buddies and then you puke from nerves at the bottom and wow it's just it's the best thing ever right you're just like that's amazing who thought of this this is great um and doing lots of urban riding and doing stair gaps and trying to figure out how to ride skate parks and stuff on just the most awful bikes ever right Mm -hmm. like i raced on hardtails until i was 16 um and then i got my first downhill bike which was a uh, mountain cycle shockwave 9.5 which is the worst bike ever <laughs> and i had yeah the wor- i had haze brakes that were awful i had you know probably six pound atom lab wheels i had hard compound tires that were bald all the time i had a dorado on the front and a fifth element like this is the worst mm. bike ever the top tube on my size large shockwave was an inch shorter than a size small sunday Wow. So, and I was six foot two at the time, right? Yeah. So it was just this, but then to balance the 21 and a half inch top tube, they stuck an 18 inch chain stay on there, <laughs> right? Which is a full inch and a half longer than what your bike probably has right now. Yeah. So, and the bottom bracket height was, uh, 15 and three quarters inches, which is, you know, two inches higher than a modern downhill bike. That's really weird. So it was the worst bike ever. And yeah. it was amazing. I mean, it was still... You were were stoked. (laughs) Are you kidding? Again, it went up and down in the rear. So (laughs) that was was a bike I ended up taking uh, to my first Norba National. I raced Sea Otter on that bike on downhill tires and flat pedals. Mm -hmm. And then was surprised that I lost. I remember I was 18. We all went down to Sea Otter and I was like, man, I felt like I put a pretty good run together. I don't know how those people beat me by 15 (laughs) seconds. And looking back, you're like, oh, yeah. You were on downhill tires that weighed five times more than what everyone else was running. Sure. And you suck at pedaling because you're 160 pounds and six foot two. So (laughs) anyway, so it was just, it was everything, right? So I was doing dirt jumps and skate parks and street riding. I was trying to do stair gaps. I was really into skinnies for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, yeah, downhill racing was a constant theme. Um, So yeah, and at a certain point, and I think... My dad was a bit of an influence on that because he was a ski racer. And so my mom thought all of this was pretty stupid, but she was okay with it. Um, but because my dad was so into racing, yeah, that that was sort of the avenue that I could get them to okay, mm. you know? Yeah. Because like as soon as I said, well, mom, but it's a, it's a race, my dad would kind of look at her and be like, racing is important, you know? And she's like, okay, fine. You can drive to Deer Valley, Utah, or you can get those new brakes you want. Because me jumping off of curbs and and building jumps wasn't particularly important to her. Sure. But uh, yeah, anyway, it was was good. So basically, bikes were the funnest thing ever. They were so much fun instantly that they ruined my life. Mm. Right. I mean, it's just, it's like a drug. Yeah. They're the best. What what was your first real bike? <laughs> my like first, first real awesome bike. One. Uh my first I haven't had that many awesome bikes. Um No, no, but the, like the mountain cycle was awful, right? But to <laughs> me at the time it was the most amazing thing in the world. Yeah, my first bike was a Kobe hardtail, rigid bike. We're talking about 1980s, man. Early 80s. So early production mountain bike. Period. Mountain bike. Just um, the fact that it wasn't a street bike was awesome. So it was awesome, right? Yeah. And the first thing I did, it was snowing when I got the bike and uh, in in Kent, Washington, where even then it didn't snow all that often. And I went, out, went directly out and found a jump. 
that was okay. So imagine. Have about you ever a, jumped before? No. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> a, imagine a hill that's about eighteen percent, which is extremely steep. I mean, yeah. that's really steep. And then a jump that's that's the exact angle in the opposite direction going off the hill with very little scoop. And I just I just launched myself immediately over the bars, uh, right? Uh, no, no. Actually, I came down. Uh, pr- yeah, more or less over the bars, but mostly I bent the hell out of the frame. Brand <laughs> new frame, <laughs> brand new chromoly frame. So the first thing you did was ruin the bike. The first, that's step one, ruin the bike. Well, uh, when I say the hell out of, what I mean is that uh, you could no longer ride the bike with no hands. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I could still ride it, but <laughs> no, the so, balance was wrong. Yeah. So, so you couldn't take your hands off the bars. So that's like. <laughs> When you have a shitty old car and you mm-hmm. take it to the shop and they're like, it's going to cost $200 to repair that. And you're like, no, 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 but I just want it to run. Yep. And That's they're like, right. no, no, but we don't do that. We make it uh, like new condition. You're like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. I want it to. I know it's ruined from a professional standpoint. <laughs> I want it to be usable. Yeah. So yeah. that bike was ruined, but usable. Usable. Yep. So I have that exact setup on one of my commuter bikes in D.C. Okay. So it was in the basement when I moved in. And it was like an old, I want to say, that's oh, one of the uh, English brands. That's a Windsor. So it's like a oh, yeah. 82 Windsor or something. Yeah, yeah. But it had clearly been in an accident. Like someone <laughs> ran it into a wall or something, immovable. <laughs> Abused. Um, so the forks bent and the top and down tube both mm-hmm. have like growth marks on them sure you know uh so the bottom one goes in the top one is clearly stretched out mm-hmm. um and like one of the lugs on the underside of the down tube has actually punched in the down tube a little bit mm. and when i the headset felt terrible so it was really really indexed like the most indexed headset i'd ever felt so i took it to the shop and said oh well i'll just pop the headset out throw some new bearings in there uh throw some grease and when I did that, the bottom cup just fell out. Sure, because oval. Yeah, exactly. So I JB welded that back in there. And the point is, headset feels great now. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's rideable. <laughs> and it's going to kill me at some point. But the point is, if you take your hands off, it just instantly careens <laughs> into the nearest car. Right? So it's yep. like, ruined, but usable. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yep. Well, that's the love of bikes right there. So you how long it. did you ride the Kobe? The Kobe, oh, not not real long. I actually managed to sell that. You sold that? <laughs> I did, yes. <laughs> you son of a bitch. I, <laughs> I know. Did, did he know? Somebody else wanted it worse than I did. Did you tell him, like, hey, uh, it's slightly used? So anyway, <clears throat> <laughs> this is a conversation about you, Charlie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so mostly, mostly downhill. Um, did you get in, much into the slope style stuff or the... The trick jumps or anything like that? Or? Yeah, so I've done a couple jump competitions. Okay. I've never done a slope-style event, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just horrible at it because like, I didn't really have a deep bag of tricks. And when it came down to it, I think looking back, I realized that I didn't care that much. Like right. I would throw my body and soul into a downhill race mm-hmm. that you know with reckless abandon. Yeah. But spinning around and going upside down and stuff on jumps is really scary and i wasn't willing to be that scared Mm -hmm. so like (laughs) i remember uh there was an event um out in hillsborough the wham bam thank you jam (laughs) and there was a step up trick jump and i probably tried to three it 50 times Mm -hmm. right 
And every single time in the middle of the three, I would take my foot off mm. um, and ride it out. But like, if I just kept my foot on, I probably would have ridden it out. Sure. But I just could not get my brain out of that. So mm. anyway, I say a lot to say that I'm just not that good at jumping. So mm-hmm. that, that was, <laughs> I can make it through any set of jumps, mm. but doing tricky spinny stuff and taking hands and feet off, mm. it's really scary. Yeah, it is. It's way easier to ride your bike when your hands and feet are on the bike. And like, what if they don't go back on where you want them, right? <laughs> that would be really bad. Yeah. Or what if or what if they do and you're sideways? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like how many people I've known several people who just broke broke their hands trying to learn threes, even in mulch or whatever, because you come down and you know, you're torquing in one direction and, and if everything isn't just right, then you get whipped off to one side and down you go and you stick your hand out and <laughs> So that's something I still like I can do a decent three Mm -hmm. but in terms of goals i still have for riding i would like to be able to do 360s in the middle of a set consistently and i feel like a lot of that is just practice and the reason you get hurt the first time you do a three or you do anything is because you're stiff Mm -hmm. right and you're like holding on for dear life because you're just hucking it as hard as you can and no control if you're all froze up exactly and with experience like when you watch any professional BMX or slope style guy, they're so loose and they can just, uh, they spot their landing as they're coming into it. They're calm. They've seen this angle a million times. They know if they're high or low and they just set the bike exactly where it needs to be. But if you're just locked up and terrified, you have to be perfect, right? Or else you're going to over rotate, under rotate, overshoot. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Like actually true. It was, uh, it was rampage. Brandon Seminuk this year, had this crazy three on a step up where it's like a flat spin, dump three, super steezy, whatever thing. Yeah. And he cased the ever loving shit out of it. <laughs> but you could see as he was coming into the landing on a step up, upside down and backwards, he knew he was out of position. Yeah. And he just got real light mm-hmm. and he sucked the back, uh, back tire up a little bit, got light on the pedals. And an experienced rider knows that he cased the living shit out of it. Mm-hmm. But anyone who was watching on TV, it just looked like it looked like the smoothest thing in the world. Like the rear yeah. tire just went up and around the landing yep. instantly, um, just because he has that light touch, right? So anyway, I, Brandon Seminick, if you're listening, I want to be able to 360 just like you, just like you someday. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's like the uh, the cork seven to the cork 1080 that Nikolai Rogatkin. Yeah. Um, uh, two tries uh, on on two different runs. I think it's two years ago, and on the first try, he he doesn't case. He stops dead at the right at top the top of the landing. Of the landing. He just, like, runs right into it, and, and then and then, but but because he was so conscious of what was at, of what was going on and his body position and everything else, that he just stood up. He didn't even fall. He just stood up over the bike and then turned to the audience and threw his hands up. Like he just, st- I haven't, I didn't see this. He it's just stops dead crazy. on the top of the landing, but Cork. absorbs it smoothly. Mm-hmm. Cork 1080. It looks Probably like on an enormous jump too, right? Enormous. Yeah. Lots and lots of time in the air. And so then like, he turns to the audience, throws his hands up. And of course everybody goes ape shit, right? They're, yeah. It's just, it's one of the greatest, uh, uh, you can't call it a fail. It's just too. And then he, the next time he sticks it. So. Uh huh. And that's like a double broken wrist, double ankle sort of thing for anyone else. Yeah. If you're not, well, you know how it is when you, when you, you can 50, 50 and absorb and, and people look at you and go, 
oh my god that and you go no not really because i saw it coming i knew it was happening i yeah you know i shocked it up and it, it was fine but to do it <laughs> at the tail end of a Cork 1080 gone wrong, which yeah. I don't know about you, but I can't even conceptualize of a cash roll, let alone <laughs> yeah. a Cork 1080. No, I mean, like when I do 360s now, I still have, I, even though I'm more relaxed, yeah. I still have total glitter vision, right? Where I can't <laughs> really see what's happening at all because I'm freaking out. My brain's just like, oh my goodness, what are we doing? Why are we backwards? Um, so I can't imagine having the presence of mind to do that on a three. And to do that three times and be upside down, yeah, I don't think that's not that's not in my future. Yeah, yeah, those guys. Yeah, exactly. Incredible. Really but anyway, incredible. so downhill racing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at a certain point, it it became. Yeah, it, it was asking my parents permission to do things and getting more yeses with downhill racing than the other stuff. But then also, sure, getting better at it. Mm-hmm. Um. And it was funny. I always, like when I was younger, <clears throat> I was really out of control for a long time. Okay. Because I was, like I said, 6'2", six, 6'3", six, and about 165 pounds. So I couldn't control the bike at all. Like I was just getting owned by it everywhere mm-hmm. um, and getting bounced around by rocks or roots or whatever, but just wanting to ride fast. So I was super sketchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so I think with age and strength and experience, I started to ride better, but I basically always viewed myself as this sketchy or bad or the worst rider in my group of friends. Okay. And that was kind of the attitude I brought to it. And I don't think it was until 2014 or something when I think after I won a Northwest cup and beat Luke Strobel, who's one of my all time idols and one of the best riders I've ever seen on a bicycle. Sure. And I went, Oh, I guess I'm, I guess I'm actually pretty good at this (laughs) where it never dawned on me it was always like oh i'm the shitty guy who just gets lucky Mm -hmm. right or i just try harder than everyone Mm -hmm. um and then i realized oh i actually because when you're super fast you don't feel super fast you just feel like you're bike riding yeah so until you have that external measuring stick you just think oh well i suck but i try really hard (laughs) yeah there's a video clip that i saw of you from a few years ago where uh I don't remember the context and I'll try to find it. Maybe you can tell me what it is where basically you're saying, um, I ride in the pro class. Yeah. 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 So that, that was, uh, (laughs) that was actually filmed out at Riverview. Um, and that trail is still available. What's the quote again? Exactly. So, um, Corey, who was filming Corey Tepper is amazing. He did all these videos. He's great. Okay. Um, but he goes, so you're a pro racer? And I pause and I go, well, I ride in the pro category. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because yeah. that would have been 2013. And I had had a couple of good results. Um, But if you spend, like, okay, so I had won one Northwest Cup. Mm-hmm. But realistically, it was when a lot of the World Cup guys were out of town. Okay. I'd won a bunch of local races in Idaho and in Spokane and stuff. Um, but that's sort of the JV crew. And I'd been to two World Cups at that point, maybe three. Yeah. And I hadn't even qualified, right? You're just getting your doors blown off by sure. um, half of Eastern Europe who showed. You've never even <laughs> heard of these guys, right? Like right. the entire nation of Poland came out to ruin my day. Um, 
in Leo Bella, Gang. Bella Ruth yeah, shows seriously. up and just slaughters you. Seriously, there are people you've never heard of who are so much faster mm-hmm. than all of the people who are cool in your town. Absolutely. Um, I just uh, interviewed uh, Chris Olivier with PS BMX, plus size BMX. Yeah. He talks about, about all the monsters in Europe. <laughs> oh my, and it's worse for BMX. Right? I <laughs> yeah. mean, it's bad well, enough for downhill, but for BMX. Yeah, they're 26 inch. That's purely 26, 26, not purely, but mostly what that site PSBMX yeah, is plus focusing. Size. Yeah. But what anyway. I mean is that stuff is cool over there. Like yeah. BMX and hardtail dirt jumpers yeah. and slope style and stuff. Uh-huh. Like, that's what people geek out about. So all of the young up and coming talent filters into that. Sure. And, you know, I think America, it's been hard for a long time because people wanted to get a huge skateboarding con. Like if you're a really, really talented action sports type athlete growing up in California or the East Coast, you're going to do dirt bikes or skateboarding or anything other than riding a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but bicycles aren't lame over in europe um and especially in eastern europe they're the coolest thing ever so yeah all of the good talent filters into that and they come out to world cups and just ruin your life (laughs) so yeah and and so many races where like i would go to sea otter i had one good result at sea otter the last year i raced there but every year before that um people i'd never heard of who just lived in the bay area would crush me in the pro race Mm -hmm. and i think i got uh like a 78th a 64th i got a 54th in 2014 and i just sort of resigned myself to the fact like oh i just suck at riding bikes apparently like i can ride a couple of courses pretty good but those Um, are all sponsorable positions nonetheless yeah totally Um, because because riders at that at that level are that they're needed i mean yeah (laughs) right well so (laughs) to fill out the field yes so the needed Here's the here's your tip if you're listening and you want to go get sponsored. No rider, no matter how good their results are, if they're not in the top 20 in the World Cup, is needed. And there are so many athletes outside of the top 20 in the World Cup who are so fast who don't get anything because the bike industry is an industry. It's a business. The reason you're being sponsored is to sell products. Sure. And the way you sell products is creating demand creating excitement uh getting your brand's name out there creating your own identity um that people know about uh that they associate with they associate good things with and if you're not doing something to make yourself very high profile or to make your brands very high profile it doesn't matter how good your results are like you're not getting paid to go have fun on your bike right so yeah so there and what does sponsored even mean right so like Right. Yeah, all the people who <laughs> let's define me, sponsorship. <laughs> they probably got some of them got free tires because they lived in Mill Valley and they knew the guys at WTB, or they got some grips from their bike shop, or right. Sure, like they all had stickers on their bikes and logos on their jerseys, <laughs> but that means a lot of different things. Yep. Um. So, anyway, like, and and going back to my personal identity crisis when I was yes. racing bikes. Um. Please. Yeah. So I was. I always felt like I was more sponsored than I was fast, mm. right? Because I was better at the business side of things and I was better at talking. It sounds like, it sounds like you, you were uh, carrying a bit of existential crisis around <laughs> totally. more, more skilled than, than you realized perhaps. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, 
just something that, that you struggled with. Yeah. And so then what was funny and the reason I basically got burned out is in the final year or two, I realized, oh my goodness, I'm really, really good at this and I love it and it's super rewarding. All I want to do is race bikes. Um, and previously when I thought I sucked, it was like, oh, well, the only mechanism for getting to do this is just hustling, right? And mm-hmm. doing whatever you have to do for any brand to get your name out there, to get free shit, hopefully to get any money. But at a certain point, I realized, oh, I'm really good at this and I'm really fast. And I don't care about any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like what I care about is racing and going fast. And then the more I started thinking about that, I realized, oh, the bike industry, for the most part, really sucks Mm -hmm. and a lot of these products really suck and i don't care about them and i don't want to spend another minute of my life talking about shitty products that i don't care about Mm -hmm. um and that's not to slam any i was sponsored by many companies i'm not slamming any particular one you could name any company off the top of your head and i could tell you three products or ads that they have or athletes that they represent that just drive me crazy every time and people I don't want to be. So yeah, I just got really sick of doing the business side of things and I just wanted to focus on racing and I kind of realized that's not how it worked. Yeah. And so I said, well, I can do this thing I hate or I can not do this thing I love. Which one is it? And and then on top of it, um so now we're at the the Charlie, why did you burn out and quit question? <laughs> um, August of 2015, I was up in Whistler and I had had a really, really long summer where I was just traveling all the time. Yeah. I did way too many races. I drove across the country. And then when I got back a month later, I flew across the country again. Um, so I was always in planes or cars. So basically from about sea otter until August, I was always traveling. Um, And it's not that I like, I think the medical condition is overtraining, which sounds like I was riding super hard all the time, but it's not that I was super active as much as that I was never resting. Like I was either on my bike or in a car or in a plane. Yeah. So I was always stressed. I was never at home. I was never comfortable. And months and months and months of that pace. And finally, up in Whistler, I just, like, I had this panic attack. Um, and it was funny. It was uh, it was during practice for the Enduro World Series up there. And I was riding with a couple of guys. And we were off the very tip-top, tip-top of the world. We were practicing Kyber Pass. Mm-hmm. And they were ahead of me. And I started getting this slow flat. And they were just like a couple of yards, hundred yards ahead of me. Um, Cause I always, by the way, I always practice slower than everyone because they're dumb. And the point of practice is not to go fast. It's to learn things. This was a constant. That was another constant We're going to come back to that. Yeah. That was a constant struggle for me. So I was already stressed out because I wanted to stop and look at stuff and they kept wanting to go faster. Then I got this really slow leak in my front tire. And I was really tired from the whole week before because Corey and I had done this huge video contest. Uh, Corey. Corey Tepper. Okay. Yeah. So you can see the video in the notes on that one. That yes. Was, uh, I'll put them there. Yeah. Uh, the Dirt Diaries video. Um, and so I was already stressed out and frustrated and just like, I'm so tired. I have to save my energy, but I have to keep up with these guys. But they're so freaking stupid. 
they're going too fast. Like, who even practices this way? We're not going to learn anything. Yeah. It's not a race to get through practice. I'm having, like, this argument in my head. And then I get a slow leak in my front tire. And my front tire is getting lower and lower and lower. And my friends are getting farther and farther away. And I had everything to change it out. But for whatever reason, it was just freaking out in my brain. Like, I got to catch them or else they're going to leave me up here. Or what if, like, my tube doesn't work? And then... Um, so I keep pedaling faster and faster, but I'm getting more and more tired and my heart rate's going crazy. And I ended up finally pulling over to change my flat and I was just like heart in my throat, freaking out. And so I started taking, I felt like I couldn't breathe. So I started taking my backpack off my helmet, my goggles. I took my Jersey off and I kept like trying to open up my chest, like spread my shoulders back. And I rolled back and forth on the ground for a really long time before I felt like my chest wasn't constricting and collapsing. And I was there shirtless, just sitting on the forest floor on the side of the trail for about five or 10 minutes or something. Um, just trying to like catch my breath and figure out what just happened. Yeah. Um, and finally I fixed my flat. I roll up and all my friends were waiting at this rest stop. Right. They didn't even notice that I wasn't there because they're just talking. Hmm. Um, they're like, Oh, Hey, what's up? Oh, nothing. I'm good. Right? Like, I'm not going to say, oh, I just had this crazy experience. I have emotions and, like, mental problems that I need to hash. I'm not going to say that. Right? No. I'm definitely not going to share that with friends. Not with mountain bikers. Nope. You just, you just <laughs> bury those feelings. Right? You just yeah. take those and just cram them right back down where they came from. Sure. Um, and so I tried to get through the rest of the weekend. Um, and then I remember... We got held up in customs on the way back. Like, so for the rest of that weekend, I just felt super flat and horrible. Like, not horrible, but just had no pep at all. Gotcha. Just like, okay, I can ride my bike, but I don't really have any energy to go hard. Or So I made it through the race. Um, I was out riding with people afterwards. And again, it was just like, man, I don't really feel like I have any pep. Like I can kind of keep up with people, but as soon as they start going fast, it's a lot of work hmm. to keep up. And I couldn't tell what it was. And then driving across the border, we got held up in customs and they took our phones and they said, you know, they were going to cavity search us or like burn the van down or whatever threats, you know, sure. Cause they're just going to say whatever they can to get in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is me driving the big map black vehicle. Right. Mm. So it's just, a red flag like oh we should definitely pull this person over and make their life horrible <laughs> right so anyway i had another panic attack at customs just freaking out just like all i want to do is get home oh man um, bad timing yeah totally and so the drive home was just the longest seven hours from uh the or i guess it's five but the longest five hours from the border back to portland um and i didn't really want to do anything after that and every single race was just the most dreadful thought in the world to go to. Mm. And then I would just try and save my energy for the race run and then lay it all out at the race run and then go home. And I remember I was so tired by the last few races that in between races, and I was getting, trying to get massages or something or rolling out my calves, just like, what on earth do I need to do to not feel so horrible? Yeah. Um, I would do nothing in between races. And so there were a couple of Cascadia dirt cups I was doing, a couple of Northwest cups. Um, So I'm driving to, idaho or up to port angeles i'm driving to stevens pass um or seattle or whatever and for each one of them i'm i was just literally sitting on my parents back porch just staring at the woods 
hmm. for four days, right? Hmm. Just sitting on the porch, maybe reading a book, maybe on the internet, probably not. Just literally just waiting for the day to be over hmm. um, with no energy to do anything and uh, just dreading going to another bike race. Wow. Thursday rolls around, load up the vehicle and just, okay, I got to get through this. Hmm. And then just trying to survive the weekend. And I remember heading out for the last couple, my parents were really worried and because I was so tired. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm pretty worried, too. I'm just trying not to get hurt. <laughs> like, that was my goal. It's just like, Jeez. clearly you're not at the top of your game. So just try not to get hurt. Yeah. Um, and then that fall. So basically the very last race, the van broke down as so I was up at Tiger Mountain. And the day after the race, I'm like, cool. I survived the whole season. I'm ready to go. I stayed over at a friend's house and the next morning the band broke down. Yeah. And I was just completely in the end of my rope. So I just left it there and took the bus home and didn't go back up to pick it up for, I think, a month or something mm. to troubleshoot it. Yeah. Because I knew how it was, uh, it was the ignition coil. Um, and I knew how to troubleshoot that. And I just had no matches to burn on it. So I was just like, yeah. uh, fuck it. I'm just going to leave this here. Yeah. And I'm going to. I'm going to figure that out when I feel like it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do anything for that whole month. Like I didn't have a car and it was fine. And for pretty much six months or something afterwards, um, I didn't do anything. I didn't really ride bikes at all. I had no energy. I got tested for everything by my doctor. Like I got tested for AIDS and cancer on top of wow. like, I kind of thought I had Lyme disease maybe because I'd mm -hmm. been in New Jersey mm -hmm. um, and that's a tick place. So I got tested for Lyme disease. I got tested for thyroid. I got tested for kidney failure and everything. And they basically didn't find anything. Mm -hmm. um, and the doctor kept recommending antidepressants. It's like, you should take all these antidepressants. We think it would really help. Mm. I'm like, no, I'm yeah. not going to do that. Right. That's, I don't think that's what it is. And he's like, well, you know, we see a lot of people with these symptoms. I'm like, are a lot of those people professional athletes? Yeah. Because I think there's maybe something different going on here. Hmm. And so anyway, it was an adventure. And so I think I'm on the other side of that. Cool. And physically, I have a lot of my game back. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was a really, really long process to, I think it was a, at least a full year before riding didn't feel horrible. Mm. So it, in that period, it wasn't really even an option to keep bike racing gotcha like it was just unhealthy and painful mm. um but on the other side of that i still love bike racing mm -hmm. <laughs> bikes are pretty they're basically the funnest thing ever yeah um but it's that question of like okay well i can either wade back into the bike industry and figure out how to get paid to do this mm -hmm. or i can't right and mm -hmm. so so it it's weird to me and it probably looks weird to everyone else that I just pieced out off the face of the planet. Mm. Right. And I don't even ride mountain bikes in DC now, but it just doesn't look like it's on the menu. It's like, well, I could structure my entire life around being near mountains that have bikes. Um, I could, uh, I'm in DC cause my girlfriend's out there. Right. Okay. It's like, okay, so I could ask her to move somewhere closer to mountains or I can, drive four and a half hours to go ride snowshoe or two and a half hours to go ride gw forest or wow an hour and a half to go ride frederick or like i could live my whole life in a vehicle i could structure my whole life and the rest of my career around being in a place with mountains it's like oh, i could just go road biking today yeah. so yeah it's one of those weird things where it's just like i said it 
doesn't feel like mountain biking is on the menu right now. Gotcha. Like, like the the cost of choosing mountain biking is really high. Right. It's like, oh, like, I just can't do that. Between the health thing and the and the geographic location, it's a yeah. I'm not worried about the health thing as much anymore because okay. I basically have the most stressful job in the universe right now, and I seem to be which is construction. So I'm working. Sure. So yes, right now I'm working. I just got off the six day a week schedule, but uh yeah working construction and it's not completely horrible but not my favorite thing right um but anyway yeah so i think i can probably handle the physical thing but yeah racing was my entire life Mm -hmm. like everything i did was structured around that um so finding a balance short of that is pretty hard right like Right. Okay, I could do a couple of races every year. Um and I could go riding every once in a while. But more or less unless things change significantly, I can never have anything close to that without completely restructuring my life. Yeah. Like I was used to riding four or five times a week mm-hmm. and doing 20 trips a year. Mm-hmm. And you might know this Norman Working people can't do that. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Because you got to pay the bills and stuff. So, yeah, the cost of, of racing is a professional or amateur racing is a, a constant part of this conversation, actually. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people talk about, you know, the uh, Eric Porter was just talking about how he early on, he, um, you know, worked full time as much as he could and then, and then just jumped in the van and ate, uh, uh, 29 cent cans of, Tuna fish and yeah, and um, mac and cheese. Yeah, during you know during race season. Yeah, competition season for him. So yeah, so I think what I'm trying to say right now, Norman, is that I'm completely spoiled, and that sounds awful, <laughs> right? Because like All there right. was a time when right. I would do that. It's sure. like okay, all I can have is tuna and mac and cheese, uh-huh. and I have to work forty hours a week, and then like drive overnight Friday night. Like cool, yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm. And now I, that sounds awful. <laughs> I, like, I definitely want to ride mountain bikes and go race, but I don't want to do any of that. Sure. So Interesting. Yeah. yeah. You'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. No, I will figure it out, and I'm continuing to figure it out. And the one thing I know for sure is that I want to ride mountain bike. Sorry, I want to mountain bike more than ever, which uh-huh. is how much I'm doing it. So, hmm. yeah. Uh, like, I'm back in town. I get to go riding a couple times while I'm here. Cool. I finally have a mountain bike out there. So, Yeah. They're the funnest thing ever, so I would like to do it more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, you said something interesting about practice, uh, slow, the slow practice thing. Yeah. Which I, I find that sometimes it's the only way I can get through, say, a new feature, right? Something mm-hmm. that I'm that that freaks me out or whatever, and and all I can do is is just take it a little tiny bit at a time. And to some extent, that's a different thing, I'm sure, than what you're talking about. But No, it's not. That's exactly the same okay. thing. Okay. Because downhill race courses are really scary. Yeah. Right? So when you talk about hitting a new feature and that sense of nerves and trying to take it apart bit by bit, well, racing as fast as you can down a rocky, rooty, chunky downhill course covered in gap jumps and blind turns and things like that is terrifying. Right? And if you... Or it's terrifying when it's unknown. Um, and so you're not being measured on your practice, right? Your practice is time you're given freely to do with as you please so that you can arrive at the one important time of the entire weekend, your race run, 
prepared and confident and relaxed and whatever mental state, emotional state you need to be in, whether that's happy or angry or worried or wherever you need to be, like you get a really long time to get there. Um, and that's why it killed me. Right. Like no one practiced like I did. They all, almost everyone did full runs and they tried to go full gas a lot of the time. Sometimes they'd stand and look at a section, but, um, I wanted to be hiking sections a lot. I wanted to, I never, ever did full runs ever because my whole thought was, well, I want to feel like a million bucks every time I hit it in practice so that I can trick myself into riding it the same way, even when I'm totally knackered in my race run, right? Like at the bottom of a race run, you're not going to feel like a million bucks, (laughs) but if you're just used to hitting this section the same way, every time you just kind of do it by autopilot. And, uh, so the idea is your practice is for two things. And and let's just say by practice, I'm speaking very broadly to include outside of formal practice on a race course for a race run. Yes. Like all of your practice ever um, in the weeks, months, and years leading up to a race run is speed practice or skill practice and data acquisition. Okay. Right? So knowledge knowledge of the run yeah knowledge of the terrain bike setup tire pressure all that stuff um and i think people focus a lot on the skill and speed thing where it's like i just need to be going the fastest all the time um but it's almost impossible to work on data acquisition while you're going fast Mm -hmm. yeah right yes because your brain is not in record mode it's in survive mode um and you can do one or the other. So if I can choose for my race run, like would I rather have more knowledge or more practice going fast on this course? I can do speed practice on my own all the time, right? Like I can get used to the idea of going fast and what that feels like on my own, but I can never know what the course is going to be like unless I do lots of slower data acquisition runs. And so of course you have to do some of that at you can't do it all at walking pace, right? Right. I'm not suggesting that, but but running up to a feature and grabbing your brakes, uh, at the you know so that so that you're not uh, taking risk before the race. I think it makes more sense to go go through it slowly, or even to go at walking pace. Totally. And the what I'm getting at is, if you had to choose to err to one side or the other, like should I practice faster or slower? Yeah. definitely slower sure. and then you just speed up your pace mm-hmm. and not just that but the same way you said the first time you ride something you ride it really really slow well that means that you felt comfortable you were inside your comfort envelope the first time you hit it and so i think it's a better practice uh, uh habit to just stay inside your comfort envelope and let it expand naturally mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to go beyond it and being uncomfortable because like i said when you're in survival mode you're not taking mental notes you're not learning you're not thinking like oh look at that cool line over to the left that i didn't see the first time i went through here Mm -hmm. you're just pinned Mm -hmm. and so being able to hit something at a really slow pace and then work your way up and feel comfortable the whole time a lot of time you can show up at your race run and not feel like you're about to die Mm -hmm. like in fact i think you shouldn't even though to someone watching they'd go oh my god that guy's going so out of control fast if you've worked your way up to it and you're confident the whole way up and you've crashed a couple of times like just slid out in a couple of sections trying a faster pace than maybe works 
And you're like, okay, I know how fast I feel comfortable going. I know where the limit is. I'll go somewhere in there, right? I'm going to go short of where the limit attraction is, but I'm going to go as close up to it as I can. And I feel comfortable going in space because I've basically done it already. And it doesn't have to be scary. And then you just focus on, like for me, just feeling that excitement of competition and wanting, like I typically, I'm a bad person. So (laughs) I perform best when I'm focusing on beating one person. Okay. A nemesis? Yeah. Uh, A nemesis, a friend, (laughs) typically someone who doesn't know that I'm competing against them (laughs) uh, in my brain. So (laughs) like my first Northwest Cup win was in 2011 at first of two, right? It's not like I've won a million of them, but Mm -hmm. uh, it was in 2011 at Port Angeles. And I remember there was this big chunk of course where I was practicing with my buddy, Eric Loney, and he raced in the pro category, but he was like 42 or 43 at the time. Hmm. So he was almost double my age and he was crushing me in practice. Mm. I remember, I remember this like palpable sense of pain and angst (laughs) as he was pulling me in practice. And I'm just thinking, holy shit, this guy's 43 years old. I cannot lose to Loney. And, and in my race run, ageist. Yeah. In my race run, I could see him pulling away from me in Mm. my brain, right? Like in memory. Yeah. And I was just chasing him. I was just racing Loney. And I ended up, Loney got like fifth or something. But the point is, that's who I was racing and ended up winning the race. Mm -hmm. And then that good Seattle result I had was in 2015. And I always got consistently horrible results there. And uh, Steve Wentz and Matt Thompson out of Colorado, even though they were not really serious about racing, like both of them had raced World Cups and qualified and been really, really fast and really serious about racing for a period in their life. Okay. They were basically dicking around at Sea Otter. Mm. And they were both on flat pedals, on downhill bikes every year. And they would crush me there. They would always be in the top 30, both of those guys. Mm. And they were also, I'm not going to say old, they were uh, more experienced <laughs> than I was. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember just being like, dear God, I've been at Sea Otter. I've probably raced here for five times already. And I always get my doors blown off. I don't. I know I'm not going to do well. I just don't want to get beat by Steve Wentz again. I just don't. Don't let Steve beat me. And I remember Steve and I had a dollar wager. And so I figured like, okay, I have to get inside the top 35 or something. And then I can probably beat him. Um, and I was, you know, I was a salaried sponsored pro athlete. I was sleeping in a hotel that was provided for. They paid for my travel down there. Like they had a lot poured into me. I was driving a huge van that they paid for with (laughs) stickers on the side of it um, that said like 10 foot long stickers that said gravity on it. Mm. I looked so pro and in my brain, I was only racing 38 year old Steve Wentz who had like a beer before he dropped in. Right. (laughs) But in my brain, I'm like, I gotta beat Steve. And I ended up getting 16th, which was unreal. Right. Because my best result before was 54th. And I beat Chris. 17th place was Chris Kovarik. Oh, and I remember just shitting wow. my pants. Yeah. And being like, holy shit. And I'm sure Chris <laughs> Kovarik wasn't really trying. Or maybe he was, but it was a big deal for me. I was like, holy shit. And I was just, I was just racing Steve. That worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So practice is about data acquisition and then putting yourself in that emotional state that you need to be in to win. And for me, like I said, I'm a bad person. 
focusing on beating one person puts me in a pretty good emotional state. Because <laughs> I'd say that was something I really learned um, in the last couple of years is for downhill racing, there's obviously all the physical stuff, right? Like I need to be in shape. I need to have lots of practice riding my bike. I need to um, figure out tire pressure and bike setup. And that gets into a lot of the mental side, right? Where you're saying, what can I do to be prepared? And you're making good decisions on line choice and you're using your practice wisely. And I would say I had a very stoic approach to bike racing for a long time where I mm-hmm. thought, Oh, the mental side of things is what unlocks. So, uh, unlocks everything and people would have race nerves or whatever. And I remember saying, why would I be nervous? That wouldn't help. That's stupid. <laughs> right? Like I'm smarter than that. There's no value in that. Yeah, exactly. So I would just be like, I'm smarter than everyone else. And what I finally realized in the last year or two, is that I had race runs where I had fantastic mental prep and I made lots of really good decisions and I got a mediocre result. And I had other race runs, lots of times, my best race runs, where I was dicking off and I wasn't making particularly good decisions, but I rode the shit out of the course and had a really good run. I was trying to figure out what's going on here. Like, why is it that in one of them, I made really good decisions, and in the other, I made really bad decisions, and either the results are exactly the same, or I'm actually doing better. Yeah. And what I realized is, oh, I'm not a robot. I'm a human being with emotions and feelings, mm-hmm. and apparently being happy or having a good time or having animal instinct feelings that bubble to the surface is okay. Yeah. And maybe I should focus on that. And so at that point, that was when everything got unlocked, is when I realized oh, it's okay to have feelings. And not just that, it's okay to channel them or think about them. Like, I can, I don't have to just bury my feelings, right? Like, I can use them. Um, And that was when things really started happening. Like, I suddenly started getting pretty consistent, really good results because I was just having fun, right? Like, instead of going out of my way to kill, be my own uh, killjoy, right? Sure. And just kill the buzz all the time. It's like, I need to be more serious, right? I need to be making, I'll never have a beer. I'll never have soda. I need to just, I like, no, I, that was when I started eating gummy bears all the time at race races and like having a beer with friends afterwards and um, like going out of my way to build a jump and jump it a bunch of times and stuff like that. So yeah. Cool. that would be my tip. So uh, you might need to have fun at your race run. You might need to, be competitive and shitty. You might need to listen to music or whatever, but I think it's, you can't do well without the physical stuff, but that doesn't win the race. You can't do well without some of the mental stuff, but that doesn't win the race. But I think it's, it's once you can lock down the physical side, the emotion, the mental side, and like really dial in your emotions. They're so powerful that essentially those override everything else. And you can do amazing things when your emotions are directed in the right way. Hmm. It's pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. That's really cool, man. Yeah. So there's your downhill racing tip of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Let's, uh, let's maybe step back uh, for a minute again. I'm curious about, um, influencers, mentors, anybody who had a really substantial impact on your, your younger. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge list. So, uh, especially when I was younger, um, there are a lot of Oregon people, um, that I would point to. So like, um, 
growing up in the Oregon races, Gabe Owens uh, was one of the scariest people in the entire world. <laughs> so Gabe is covered in Slayer tattoos. He had uh, just this crazy Viking hair below his shoulders. Um, he would just be yelling. I don't know if this is uh, a family-friendly podcast and if I shouldn't be swearing, but... Go for it. For, as we're, a, we're deep into yeah. in, into not clean, so So as a 16-year-old, as a 15 and 16-year-old, like, church-going, naive, sheltered little kid <laughs> at the top of Ski Bowl waiting for my race run, yeah. you could watch Gabe in his race run and you could hear him half a mile away <laughs> uh, and hundreds of feet below you pedaling where no one else was pedaling like absolutely no one else was pedaling down these super steep hills and he had this huge chain ring on the front of his bike and he would just be mashing as hard as he could into turns <laughs> where everyone else was braking and he would be yelling the entire way down fuck you satan fuck you just fucking kill me die i hate you gabe die like just awful things wow and then he would win by five seconds or something yeah. and before his race run before he went up to you know put on that display of insanity <laughs> he would be pedaling just back and forth shirtless in the parking lot on his downhill bike with uh earbuds in but they were so loud that you would be 20 feet away and you just hear you know like staticky horrible slayer coming out of him <laughs> and you just have this thousand yard stare oh. and you're just sitting there as a 15 year old right just going holy shit if that's what it takes to win downhill races <laughs> i am never gonna be good at this right <laughs> like that guy is yeah. I, I always thought of gabe as uh like he was mel gibson from braveheart mm, but born several hundred years too late uh -huh. like <laughs> He was just wanting to be killing people in the front lines of a battle with swords, mm. and he didn't get to do that. Right. So motorcycles and bikes were sort of his, sort of. <laughs> um, so anyway, he was a huge influence, uh, and that whole group of people. So Jim Carn uh, down in Bend is the guy that I bought that van from. Okay. Um, so Brad Watt is another. Jim Carn was a huge trail builder down in Bend. Um, Brad Watt is a huge trail builder up here. Um, in the coast range and both of them um, were very when i talk about the stoic attitude both of them were very orderly and methodical and smart in their trail building like trail building is something i talked about on team robot a lot because i was spoiled with the best trail builders ever in my backyard and so many people go out and basically just rake something down a steep hill mm. and get stoked and try and find rocks to jump off of and they would go out in the woods and scope trails for months before they ever broke ground on it because they'd be agonizing over okay but if i go right around this tree then that kind of sets me off on the downslope of this ridge i'm gonna have to turn back across it off camber and you're gonna lose a lot of speed and then you have to go back traversing and so i guess i need to go to the left of this tree and that'll keep average speed up which means, you know, you're getting less downhill in right now, but you won't have that like pedally out of a corner bullshit feeling. And they would, <laughs> so they'd be scanning over topo maps forever and trying to, um, and they thought through every single aspect of every single trail um, and their trails road, like Jim's trails on Klein Butte and Brad's trail, which I think, yeah, you can still ride. It's legal. Um, Raven's Ridge are, they're the best trails I've ever ridden. Like, oh, what's your favorite trail in the world? Raven Ridge, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's the best ever. It was so well thought out. 
every corner leads naturally into the next and it's terrifying the whole way down what but at the same time you feel like you could go a little bit faster every single time you ride it wow um so those guys were huge influences from me uh, on me um phil wearing was another guy in that group um and he was the one that i built the riverview trail with so phil and i uh teamed up together to work on the trail um in riverview cemetery so that's where our dirt jumps were um what town is that in that's in portland okay so yeah the riverview cemetery is right by the selwood bridge um and is this the controversy yeah exactly okay yeah so portland um, hates me yeah so if you're a cyclist in portland you've almost certainly ridden up the riverview cemetery road that goes to the cemetery and the woods are right next to it. Um, and we had our dirt jumps there forever. And at a certain point they said, well, I'm spending too much time in a car driving around to ride my downhill bike. We should build something in town. So Phil and I built that together and I learned so much about trail building, laying out and building that trail with Phil and how much time we spent scoping and making decisions, um, around, yeah, which tree to go around. Like, sure. Because every, Trees are like slalom gates, right? So they put you in one place headed one direction or another, mm-hmm. and which tree gap you go through changes everything. Mm-hmm. And especially at Riverview, there's so little vertical. I think that draws out. If you have a really steep hill, it's easy to build something fun for a while. Um, but when it's really flat, it's hard to maintain momentum. So you have to think a lot harder about it. Yeah. And that trail is really, really flat. And he just did such a good job of showing me like, oh, well, yeah, th- it would be really cool if we went down that section, but then it would be extra, extra flat for a really long time. And that trail is one of the funnest trails. Like it, it flows really well. Um, there aren't a bunch of horrendous breaking points. Um, your average speed stays up the whole way. Um, and there's a minimum use of berms. Like I think a lot of bad trail building uses relies on berms sure. because you get in yourself in positions where the only way to change direction is to build some huge wall of dirt so you can change direction. Um, and so berms end up being a crutch in trail building as opposed to um, a lot of time you can just make a rut. Like if you pick a good line, the rut builds up over time and the trail gets better and better. Um, Interesting. Whereas if you build, if you, lay out a trail where you need a berm there, um, then the berm is going to get more and more worn out mm-hmm. and it's going to be worse and worse as you ride. As opposed to a trail that doesn't need one, the rut gets better and better. I'm like, oh, that's really good trail building. So, yeah, Phil was a huge influence there. Obviously, with Riverview, that ended up getting the property got bought by the city of Portland and then they allowed it for a while and they shut it down and made the protest. It's still technically closed to biking, but the trail is still open. So if you're listening to this, go ride the Riverview Downhill Trail. It's awesome. Um, And yeah, for racing, uh, Phil and I raced each other for a really long time. We drove to Colorado and Angel Fire, New Mexico, probably a dozen times together. Um, Yeah, he was the first person I went and raced nationals with. Um, And then Aaron and Patrick from Team Robot. I mean, I don't know where I would be without them. So Team Robot originally started as Aaron and Patrick and I. So Aaron was a guy I was building jumps with in his backyard. And Patrick lived a few houses away from me. And he also went to Lake Oswego. Um, And we just did everything together. We did street riding. We did dirt jumping. We built dirt jumps together forever. 
we drove to all the downhill races together. And at a certain point we said, oh, well, we need to have a, a team so we can get sponsorship. So what should the team be called? Team Robot. Right? Why? Why? Because it's funny. That's okay. the only thing that that meant okay. is because it's a funny name. Uh-huh. Um, I've heard people try to explain what it means, <laughs> that it has something to do with some type of writing that's you guys are making fun of or something. And so it ended but up nobody can really rather organically okay. uh, transforming into meaning. Okay. Um, but okay. literally we just picked that name because it sounded funny because <laughs> everyone has, I mean, what it's really making fun of is the idea of teams and the idea of team names. Okay. Right. Cause gotcha. it should really just be Aaron, Patrick and Charlie are to race, right. <laughs> but everyone who has sponsor stickers on their bike in Jersey is like, we're team hurricane or mm. super badass racing, right? Or it's just like, no, you're three guys. That's what you are. You're three guys who wear the same jersey. That's yeah. what your team, your team should be called three guys who wear the same jersey racing, right? So we're like, well, we're going to form. It was very, uh, very cynical. We formed it just so we could get sponsorship more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't try and hide that, right? We just, like, oh, well, we're Team Robot. Um, and then, yeah, the meaning that the, that transformed into is that we're robots and we're looking at humans doing stupid things. And it's mm-hmm. sort of this satirical questioning perspective of like, why do you humans do this? Gotcha. We should kill you all. <laughs> right. And so that led into the <laughs> robot apocalypse and like, you're on the kill list, you're on the do not kill list and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. none of that was really thought out at all. <laughs> It was just Team Robot. So, yeah, and Aaron and Patrick and I built a lot of jumps together, traveled to a lot of races. Um, Yeah, I've known those guys, been riding bikes with those guys for 15 years now. So, yeah. That's great. It's crazy. So, Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Um, And then, yeah, I was teammates with Kyle Thomas on Diamondback for a really long time. so he and I traveled to Idaho and Eastern Washington a hundred million times. He showed me Taco John's. Um, Brent Atkinson and Jill Kittner have mm. been extremely patient with me for a long time. Mm. So uh, I got to travel with them on the East Coast for a while. And I left. I'm sorry, Jill. Uh, I left a about two pound pack of um, ground beef in her mini fridge in her totally bitchin' Sprinter van. For like three weeks. And then. Oh no. No, no, no. So we were in the Sprinter van together. Right. And at the end of this really long road trip. Bryn broke his femur and cracked his elbow. Mm. The weekend before. Which was devastating and horrible. And ruined his whole season. And I was this weird third wheel on that whole process. And then the next weekend. Lars, who was along on the trip. With the US Open. Lars breaks his ankle. Um, and he had to get flown out of there and it was this super shitty situation. So it was originally four of us and now it's just two and Jill ended up winning her race at the U S open, but she didn't even want to go to the podium when she heard about Lars. She was just so torn up on the inside, but she had to get sponsorship obligations and all this horrible stuff. She gets back from the podium and she is completely emotionally drained, right? And it's like 98 degrees in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. She opens up her van and there's red beef juice oh. coming out of the refrigerator. And I wasn't even, I was doing like wheelies on my bike or something. And I come back and she's like so mad. Yeah. Uh, anyway, 
So Brent and Jill are a huge influence on me. They've given me a lot of good <laughs> advice and they didn't kill me. Um, <laughs> they seem like amazing people. They're amazing. I'm really hoping I get to interview them. Yeah. And they're both so talented on bikes. It's, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. Every time I ride with either one of them, I don't think, and Bryn has done really, really well in racing. And I still don't think his, he's like Luke. I don't think their results are as good as their, their talent. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they're even better than they are. And they've had amazing results and done amazing things. But like, in terms of pure cornering speed, mm-hmm. both of those guys, and maybe that's just because those are the World Cup guys that I've experience with, like lots of personal experience with, but they're just completely savage bike riders and yeah. I've gotten to spend some time around them. Lars was a huge influence as well. I've known that guy for a really, really long time. At that same U.S. Open trip, we were practicing on this impossible turning off camber, slippery, muddy rock garden. And I kept going off course and I could not stay on track for the life of me. And I would watch people practice through it and they were having trouble, but could always stay online. And I just would get fed off the side of the track on this section every single time. And I'm riding up the chairlift talking with Lars. I'm like, Lars, what's the deal? I cannot, for the life of me, stay on this. And he's like, well, you know, you obviously have to choose your line, right? Like, what's your tire pressure? And um, he goes, and obviously, you know, you can't touch your front brake. And I go, wait, what was that? He goes, <laughs> well, you can't use your front brake. I'm like, what? why would you, like, you, you brake differently with your left and right fingers? And he goes, Yeah. <laughs> That's like slippery bike handling 101. What are you, are you fucking with me right now? And I'm like, no, man, I didn't. You can do that. Like you can brake differently front and rear. And I've been racing in the pro category for probably three years at this point, but right. no one ever told me that. Huh. And the next time I go through there, I just drag rear brake the whole time. And yeah, your rear tire slips around, but your front tire is gripping. And I was yeah. like, how did I not know about this? This is crazy. <laughs> Revelation. It's so much easier. So wow. yeah, Lars has talked me through some important, uh, important life learnings. We actually uh, took turns. We switched positions um, on I-70 in Colorado uh, on cruise control. He jumped out of the driver's seat and I took it <laughs> in Brennan Jill's van oh. while they weren't around. So yeah, Lars and I are, are tight. And then, um, <laughs> Alex McGinnis, Crunk Shocks, uh, he and I were like brothers for a long time traveling to every bike race. So there's just a bunch of people that I've spent enormous amounts of my life with Mm -hmm. traveling to bike races and um, just, yeah, doing really stupid things with. Um, And yeah, the, I don't know, it's, you get to know people so well through bike riding because you're spending fun time with them. You're spending boring time with them. Yeah. you're halfway asleep you spend yeah more time in your underwear around that person than like a significant other so mm-hmm. and that's not to name a million others so for anyone who's listening thank you <laughs> yeah there have been so many people that have supported me and made all of those things possible yeah. uh, from my parents to all the trail builders todd being an obvious one of them um, he doesn't know this yet but we got him a custom trail building tool that we're going to be presenting to him on Saturday oh, cool. from a place in New Zealand, and it's going to have Trail Boss uh, laser etched into the into the face of it, and it has nice. a carbon fiber handle. So he's a great guy. Um, you know, a million sponsors, whether that's John Kennedy or Mike Lawless, Kevin Walsh, Lars, a, a bunch of people from a bunch of companies who made my bike racing career possible. Mm. Um, yeah, 
the Northwest racing scene is a very, very tight knit family feeling kind of place. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm getting that sense. Yeah. My first interview was with uh, Tucker and Northern. Oh, yeah. Those are episode one. Those are two great guys. Uh, yeah. So how many farts were there in the interview? Right, like <laughs> None that I know of. None? Okay. I imagine that we were in Tucker's there. place in uh, Port, Port Angeles. They put on a good face sometimes. They can seem professional. <laughs> it was really a lot try. of fun. You should listen to it. Yeah. It's, it's a gas. Yeah. I will definitely do that. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Both of those guys. And they're a great example. Think about how little money they make doing this if any i I think they make you know like probably 50 cents an hour right if you pencil it out sure um but they've been doing it since 2008 um just for the love of racing and they they run the best regional or national level mountain bike race at least downhill race in america Hmm. i mean it's just amazing and there are lines at the wazoo and 500, 600 racers at these things year after year after year yeah. because they just, they make it happen and it wouldn't be there without those two guys. Yeah. They actually lay out in that uh, interview the the average number of runs per race mm-hmm. and then the number of um, serious injuries that occur uh, in, hmm. in terms of that, which I'll just let you listen to it. You and everyone else listening Go, go listen to episode one of this podcast because these guys talking about the realities of the injuries um, is pretty fascinating. And is it is the surprise that there are so many injuries per run or so few? So incredibly few injuries for uh-huh. so many freaking runs per race. Like thousands of runs per race. Mm-hmm. Handful of injuries. That's really, f- really amazing. And I think that's really been my experience in mountain biking. In terms of uh, injuries? Yeah. Okay. Is I, I've had a few injuries, and frankly, I've been abnormally lucky in that regard. And I think it's because I'm a wuss. Like, I don't really like going out of my comfort zone too much. Yeah. Um, But the worst thing that can happen on a mountain bike almost never does. I mean, I've had so many crashes, and I'm sure you've had these, where you tumble through a million trees or over rocks and stuff. And you kind of get up with a couple of scrapes and you go, that should have been a lot worse than that was. <laughs> yeah. All these bungee sticks. <laughs> yeah. And I don't have any broken skin. <laughs> yeah. Or like any one of these trees that I just flew through at 30 miles an hour could have paralyzed me for life, but I'm kind of fine. Like my arm's a little stiff, but I'm back on my bike and now we're rolling down the hill. And that's yeah. that's been my experience is that mountain biking is like compared to riding my bike anywhere in dc as just a commuter yeah mountain biking feels extraordinarily safe oh absolutely because you're in control right like you can decide whether you go out of your comfort uh envelope and you can at a certain point like everyone goes through a crashing phase where they don't really know the physics of the bike and dirt and how they interact um and so as you're wandering through that trying to learn you crash a lot but on the other side of that, it's just as dangerous as you make it, and it's as safe as you make it to a large degree. And like, for how many hours you spend on a mountain bike, there's a lot fewer injuries than you'd expect. Yeah. For me, or I think for most people. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I've crashed thousands of times. Yeah. In my life, you know, and broken bones twice, exactly twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, I have a couple of broken collarbones. I broke a thumb and that needed surgery and that sucked. 
and I broke her wrist. Hmm. Right. And it's like, and that's a lot. Talk about thousands of practice runs. I mean, that is a lot of mountain biking and not that many injuries. Yeah. So. Yeah. You've, you've cra- I'm sure you've crashed and ridden yeah. multitudes more than I have. But anyway. I would love to see, like, um, I hope we all end up in heaven and I hope I get to ask God for a highlight reel. Like that would be, and yeah, I'd like to see the highlight reel of super badass drifts I did and, you know, kept my feet on, but I don't think it would actually, I, I don't think I look that cool when I ride bikes. Mostly I just want to see the just five minute highlight reel of horrific crashes because it would be awful. I mean, it would just look so savage. And for the most part, I was fine, right? But if you just had back-to-back every horrible crash, like how many, you would need 15 minutes, right? Yeah. To get your highlight reel of awful-looking crashes. Yeah. Well, and some of your crashes are actually recording, one in particular at a Northwest Cup race. Yeah. Where you go through that turn and just whammo. Yeah, that that did not work out the way I was hoping. It was a... I'll put it Mount in sh- Hood, 2015. Yeah, okay, I'll put it in the show notes. It's it's wonderfully filmed. I don't I don't know how they set that up to to film it and then call the whole thing. Yeah, and the really storyline cool. works out really well because it's like, oh look, he's up, he's up at the split over Luke Strobel, and then in the yeah. very last turn, I crashed. Which that's not just how it's edited. That's actually how it was. That was the last place you could possibly crash on. Okay, so yeah, that was pretty frustrating. But you still kicked ass in that race. Yeah, I mean. Luke knows while he's listening to this that I definitely would have beat him. I mean, he and I have argued <laughs> this a bunch no of times. No question. But I think that's his pride arguing because I think deep down inside he knows that for sure I would have beat him. <laughs> and I never did. I never won a race at Mount Hood uh, on a downhill bike. I won an enduro, but like, who cares? No. Um, but <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, it's it, the, the reason I'm laughing is because the. the you know, there are all these div- divisions in, in uh, professional, well, professional and amateur racing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got obviously the biggest ones are cross country and then everything else, of course. Right? Yeah. And, and haha, we can all laugh about guys in spandex with really high seat posts. Yeah. And water bottles or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and, and by the way, cross country racing is really, really hard and takes a lot of talent. It's impossible. It's, <laughs> it's the hardest just, thing forget in the world. It. Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. Just. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, anyway, but then the enduro downhill thing is especially interesting to me, and I think to a lot of people because it's new and yeah, it's a specific category. And we used to be able to say enduro bike, we can't anymore. We have to say aggressive trail bike because enduro yeah. is a category, a uh-huh. legit category, et yeah, etc. Well, that's funny. So I ended up being really good at enduro racing, okay, uh, which felt like an accident, right? Because that's not. That's never what I didn't grow up watching film of guys. I wanted to be good at World Cup downhill. Mm -hmm. And I went to four World Cups and never qualified Mm. and was awesome in enduro racing. So, (laughs) no, there's nothing wrong with enduro racing. It's actually super fun. It is really hard. The athletes are really good at what they do. It's just like, that's not what I wanted to be good at. And I did a lot of that because... It paid the bills. Their sponsors liked it. But if I could swap skills with Luke Strobel, also he's a, a very strong enduro cyclist. But if I could swap skills with someone, uh, the dedicated downhill guy, I would have done it in a heartbeat, right? Like, oh, cool, I won. Uh, and there's no way I can say this without sounding like I'm demeaning um, Trey in the Cascadia Dirt Cup or uh, Devin in the Hood River or the 
uh, Oregon Enduro Series. But yeah, I would way rather win a Northwest Cup than either one of those, right? Because mm-hmm. beat Brent Atkinson, World Cup Pro? I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, How do you beat that? Right. And we all have our preferences of, you know, for the things we want to achieve. And sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't. Totally. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but actually, in all seriousness, um, the thing that's cool is that it's enduro feels a lot safer and it's a lot more fitness based. Mm-hmm. So you can actually, you can, as far as lifestyle sports go, like you can ride, I, I ride now with 45 year old road cyclists who are insanely fit and can tear your legs off. There aren't that many 45 year old downhill racers that are really competitive. Mm. Um, and so the more pedally someone gets, the easier it is to keep doing. Sure. And so Enduro ends up being an interesting blend of like, oh, I still get to basically ride a downhill bike, mm-hmm. right? It's basically downhill racing, but then there's also a fitness element in it. And because of that because there's so much more pedaling involved it just feels healthier like if all you did was sprint for two minutes in downhill runs and that was your whole world (laughs) you would have the worst fitness ever right um and so when i was downhill racing exclusively before enduro existed i still spent hours and hours and hours on the road bike all the time to build my fitness so with enduro racing you can basically just race what you do in your free time you don't have to have a bunch of different bikes. If you lived in the mountains and you had one bike, you could be a super competitive enduro racer. <laughs> the same is not true for downhill bikes. If you only rode downhill bikes, you would suck at downhill racing. <laughs> like Interesting. If you didn't run or ride road bikes or cross country or something, right? You would you would reach a threshold that you could not get past, <laughs> and you would always get beat by people who are just fitter than you. <laughs> That's like every kid that grows up in Whistler. And sucks at racing, right? <laughs> oh, interesting. But, like they live on downhill bikes yeah. or pick any Canadian ski resort. And there are kids who are super fast there and are just terrible everywhere else. Huh. But anyway, uh, yeah. Anything else you wanted to touch base on? Well, you know, we talked about, we talked about Brandon and, uh, and Nikolai. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that was one of the questions that I like to ask. Is there any, like, as far as pros that really blow your mind, but, but you've had so much access to, like you said, you know, Luke and, 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 um, Bryn and Jill and Lars. And, um, I mean, I can name a bunch of local guys that blow my mind. Like Adam Craig is one of those guys where he's so talented across so many disciplines. It's really embarrassing. (laughs) Like I can barely go faster than him, uh, sometimes in an enduro race. Yeah. And he can, ski and snowmobile and ride cross country and race cyclocross and road bikes and kayak and race rally cars faster than i can right like he can do a thousand things better than i can it's like well i'm barely better than you at my one discipline that i focus on so yeah he's pretty incredible and he's another guy that's very very methodical um with his racing and is really mentally dialed in um but what I would say as far as athletes that impress me, everyone before they die should either, if you can't, if you have no chance of ever racing in a World Cup, just go and watch one. Just go and watch a World Cup. And if there's any chance that you can barely qualify, and I mean, I was flying to Norway and Austria because those were the only places I could get in on. If you have to spend, and they were like three grand a trip, right? Yeah. Best money I ever spent. Huh. If you think, 
like you're a mid pack regional pro, but you can get in for the really like you can get into cans because it's on the other side of the world and none of the other Americans want to go there. Yeah. Do it. Huh. Because you will cry yourself to sleep at night <laughs> after every practice session watching these guys out on the course. Huh. And like I said, it's it's the guys you watch in videos that yeah. blow your mind. And they do blow your mind when they go through a section that you're struggling with and it looks like it it was just the easiest thing in the world and they're going three times faster than you. But then also just the sheer volume of people that can kick your ass. <laughs> when you think you're hot shit on a regional level is it's just incredible. And the tracks are faster and scarier and steeper and more technical than anything else you've ever ridden and or raced on. Um, and yeah, there are so many athletes I could point to that are just mind boggling. Cool. So there are a lot of really good athletes you can pick from in the sport. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. So any world cup racer would be, uh, huh. That's the answer. Inspiration. Yeah. 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 Cool. Good to know. Yeah. All I'd right. throw that in there too. Okay. Let's wrap it up. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate Norman. it. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad Verge got us in touch. So. Yeah, Verge. Yeah. <laughs> good guy. I'm sure you have a lot of good stories from him. So, The Verge episode is good. It comes just before yours in early July of 2017. Awesome. Yeah. I can't wait. Cool. Well, that was powerful and fresh. And thanks again so much to Charlie. I look forward to catching up again with him soon. You'll find tons of awesome links related to this show in show notes for this episode located at mtbjumper.com slash charliesponsel, including the video where Charlie does indeed bake a cake in his van. And whether you're using the native iTunes podcast app or Castro or any Apple or Android podcatcher, I like Podcast Republic, show notes are right there on your device. The iTunes link for this show is right there at the top of show notes. Please, if you like the show and you appreciate it or any of the episodes on this show, pop over to iTunes and give me five stars. It would make a huge difference. It's going to help get the show distributed so that I can keep doing it. Also, facebook.com slash mtbjumperpodcast. I need page likes and episode shares. Please do that. That's going to make a difference as well. If you'd like to get in touch with comments or suggestions for athletes, coaches, or industry leaders that you'd like to hear interviewed, please pop over to my contact page. You'll find a link to that right there at the top of the page at mtbjumper.com. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Another fun, informative, insightful episode is on the way. See you then. In the meantime, as Charlie says, mountain bikes are the best thing in the world and will ruin your life. So make time to ride that bike. See you soon. See you soon.